You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is John Rudd. John started coaching swimmers in 1989 and is presently the National Performance Director for Swim Island. Along the way, he has coached on international teams for seven different nations – Great Britain, England, Ireland, Netherlands, Lithuania, Turkey and Kenya at World and Continental Championship events. He is also the first and only swimming coach worldwide to achieve the International Coaching Grand Slam, which is coaching at least one athlete to all 14 major international gold medals at both senior and junior levels. He has also helped over 30 different athletes break 100 British and English senior, junior and youth records. John is one of those rare breed of coaches who is able to bring both the science and art of high performance into his philosophy in equal measure. He is passionate about success and yet pragmatic enough to know that, in his words, a coach with integrity knows that they have a duty to protect and honour an athlete's future in the sport. Some of the key highlights from our discussion included his philosophy that the journey is always more honourable than the outcome of the journey, 
how athletes have to allow all pieces of their jigsaw to be put on the table before you can help them. And the Formula One car analogy he uses to describe the difference with high-performance athletes and how they are human beings with an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, and not just simply human doings. This was a wonderful conversation. It had me smiling all the way through, and I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And now, please enjoy our interview with John Rudd. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. John Rudd, good evening and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. The privilege is all mine to be talking to you after a long, hard, dark day here in Bucharest. Maybe something really simple to kick us off today. Could you tell us where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far? I'm in, uh, I'm right slap bang in the middle of the Republic of Ireland in a county called Meath, not far away from a town called Kells. I live in a house that's basically in the middle of a field. Most of my neighbours are sheep or cows. I had COVID recently. I got trapped in Dubai with COVID um, following the Abu Dhabi World Championships. So that was an interesting experience. So I've not been back too many weeks and uh, now just starting to get our 2022 plans and and revisions in place because already COVID started to affect a few things. Will they take place? Won't they take place? So um, the non-stop roller coaster of performance sport is it's there every day. Thank you for stepping off the roller coaster for just a little bit to talk to us about all things swimming. Because John, when I was preparing for you, I can see that you've coached on international teams for seven different nations, Great Britain, England, Ireland, the Netherlands, Lithuania, Turkey, and Kenya. And you've coached these teams at world and continental championship events. And this must have given you a great opportunity to see so many different coaches up close, maybe some good ones and and some not so good ones. But from this experience and from this perspective, what is it you think that great coaches do differently that sets them apart? Yeah, I mean, that's the million-dollar question because I've bumped into and worked with and uh, gone head-to-head with so many great coaches. All of them have individual idiosyncrasies that are what make them great. But I think that there's a, there's a few things that would be sort of core standards and core values within those people. Uh, they're meticulously planned and they're extremely passionate about what they do, potentially too passionate at times, and that puts family life and relationships at times in jeopardy. Um, They have excellent communication skills, certainly verbal excellent communication skills. And if they don't have great written skills, they find someone who can do that for them. Um, They have a natural warmth and engagement with the human race. And so it doesn't matter whether they're working with athletes, with other coaches, speaking to officials, if it's with young athletes engaging with parents and families or schools and universities, they just have a natural ability to draw people in and make them want to listen to them. Uh, Even if the message that they're giving might be fairly bland and mundane, it's it's the style in which the message is delivered. Look, I've worked on teams where one of the challenges for me was I didn't speak the language that the other coaches were speaking. But you can... but you can still feel it. 
you can observe it. You can see it in body language, in the way that athletes and other members of the staff respond to, to these coaches. I don't know if that's something that's that's learnt. I think that there's an, there's an intrinsic nature to that. There's it, almost genetic. I think it can be developed, but I don't know that it can be started from scratch, I suppose is the easiest way to put it. But certainly in, in all those years where I've walked into goodness knows how many international meets, and as you say, pulled on different tracksuits for different nations, certainly there's some of the characteristics that, that I, would, I would see in those that would consider to be world leaders in their field. John, I've heard you talk about leadership as being intrinsic. You referenced it then as in your answer, but it's also something that be, can be coached and developed. But that, this is your quote, great leaders also reflect back on their childhoods. So I wanted to ask you, what was it in your childhood that helped prepare you to go on this amazing journey you've had as a head coach and in leadership positions in these organisations? Well, first of all, I had examples of fantastic parenting from, from my two parents who, on reflection, walked the line almost perfectly between giving me guidance and support and helping me make the right decisions, but also at times allowing me to trip up and make the wrong decisions too. So there were speed bumps in the road, as well as times when they pressed the accelerator for me. I think you need both. Um, I think also I, I was uh, I was a bit of a nightmare at school. I don't know. There's there's too many teachers that would that would look back fondly on their time with me in the classroom. Um, and I don't know if if uh, if that was me trying to find my way because I I was always a challenger and um, I wasn't a rebel for the sake of being a rebel. But I really didn't I really didn't take well to being told to do something without it being justified. And ever since that point in time, I've always coached, we're going to do this because. And I think a lot of coaches leave the because behind. They think that a didactic message of do this is enough. Um, so really good parenting. But when I was wrong, I was wrong. I definitely didn't have parents that, that would support me regardless just, just because there was the genetic chain there. I really hate that in parents where the, the default is their child's right just because they happen to be associated by blood. That doesn't work for me. I certainly don't parent that way, and my parents didn't parent that way. But at the same time, you know, there was there was both physical and metaphorical arms around the shoulder to, to support me. Um, I would also say I didn't necessarily come from a, a town or a school where success was just natural. There weren't great examples, uh, particularly at my school, of people that ended up being being leaders. Now it just it just so happened, which is which is really kind of odd. One of the guys that was in in sixth form with me ended up being the head coach of the England rugby league team at this in the same year that I was the head coach of the England team for swimming at the Commonwealth Games from the same school. But I don't really recall that ever really happening. Before and I don't really know if it's happened afterwards. So I, there was very definitely a sense of it being English, Northern, traditionally working class kind of area that you had to make your own chances if you wanted to do something that was a bit different to what most of your your friends would end up doing who you went to school with. I mean, at that time, it, it wasn't regular for guys at 18 to go to university, whereas now it's 
it's almost written in tablets of stone that most people would go to university. It's, it's nothing particularly special like it was in the late 80s. And I wasn't a natural academic and I still aren't. So I had to work hard. I was you know, like, I was terrible at maths. I had to take my, my maths exam four times uh, or three times, something like that. That's how good my maths is. I can't remember how many times I took it, right? So there's an example of bad maths. So, I, you know, to, just to be able to get to university to, do a, to, to become a school teacher, I had to have a maths qualification. I couldn't get the damn thing. I'm certainly not naturally gifted when it comes to um, academics. But what I, what I did do is it just allowed good influence to influence me and learn from bad influence that if it did influence me, it only influenced me once and then I recognised it was bad and that was kept at arm's length. Well, here's a number for you. 1989, that's when you first started coaching and you did it to earn a few extra dollars while you were studying. You described yourself as being quite brash back then, which you've talked about just uh, just a moment ago. But how has your leadership style evolved over those years? There's not even a resemblance to how it was in 1989. Um, leadership would, would very much have been in inverted commas. I got the job because nobody else applied. And I didn't, I didn't really have any coach. I had a coaching qualification or a teaching qualification, something really minor, but certainly no experience. I coached the way that I was coached, which again on reflection was a bit mad because the guy that coached me was really old school. So I carried that forward probably a decade longer than really should have, should have ever existed. Um, and my dad, my father coached me as well for a period of time. Um, there were times I didn't really enjoy that because I just wanted my dad to be my dad a lot of the time and him being a coach. I always felt there was a conflict of interest there. And so back in 1989, I was 19 years of age and away from home for the first time in my life and just finding my feet. And this job I did, as you say, I didn't want to stack supermarket shelves or pull pints to help fund my degree. And so if we fast forward, best part of 30 years, um, I can now actually describe a coaching style to you that I have rather than back then it would have, it, it would have been the things that now I don't like, you know, do this because I've, I've written on the board, do this because I've, I've said that's what we're doing. I'm in charge. So let's do it this way. Whereas now I would consider myself to have much more of an affiliative type style to, to the way that I do things. Um, my leadership has coaching within it. I, co- I coach within meetings of or interactions with those with whom I work. Very much now, I'm part of a team where we make joint decisions. And it's very, very rare that I make an autonomous decision. I'll work with my senior leadership team in the, in the performance arm of the sport, um, I've got a very strong and supportive CEO who, who I would meet with and, and use them as a sense check. I use a performance management group, which is a check and challenge group of experts from outside of my own sport, but with expertise in high performance sport at a strategic level to put my plans to them. So I'm highly consultative. There's a decision that's made and to get a fully rounded or as, or as much of a fully rounded view as you can from experts in different fields before a decision is made, I think is essential and helps further down the line than of not having to retract a decision and go with a different one. The only times that we really now retract decisions and change them 
is if things outside of our sphere of influence change. So if the national governing body or the have a view on things or the world governing body have a view on things or the European governing body have a view on things and they change something in their plans, well, that's when we would respond and change. But I, it's rare that we say we're going to do this and then we change it because unless something else changes outside of that that impacts on a decision, we've done as much consultation as you possibly can to get to a, a definitive decision. And that's key to my leadership style. John, you say coach the person and not the athlete. And it's an interesting idea. And I'm wondering if you could explain how people who are listening might be able to apply that in their everyday life. There's many people listening who are managing or leading others. And this philosophy of looking at someone and seeing them as two things, how could they apply that learning and thinking? Well, the the primary difference between a high-performance athlete and a high-performance Formula One vehicle is that one has emotion and the other one doesn't. And this collection of bones and tissue and blood vessels that we call a human being is absolutely that. It's a a highly cognitive and emotive um, being that is more than a performance machine attempting to win a medal in uh, a world championships or an Olympic Games. And more fool us if we forget that they carry the same feelings and the same emotion and the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other and all of those things that we experience. If we forget that the athlete is the same, um, then we not only missing a huge trick, but we're not working in the right in, in the correct realms of ethics and morals either. And so we might be able to tighten um, a bolt or change a wheel on a Formula One racing car to get a better performance. But that's because to all intents and purposes, until a person steps inside it, it's an inanimate object. What we're dealing with in terms of high performance is this living, breathing um, human being and not a human doing. And so if we don't work in that way, there's a point in time where the relationship between the person who is trying to achieve the performance and the person who is trying to help deliver the performance on their behalf, that becomes frayed and ultimately will break. Um, so for me, it's super important in, in the whole realm of, of ethical practice that we remember that we're working with, with human beings in all regards because they're only a performance athlete for what is a relatively short period of their life. And before that and after that, they revert to just in most instances, being a regular regular human being that isn't in that performance environment. We've got to remember that context at all times, that if we develop the person, then we're more likely to develop the athlete as a byproduct of that, rather than focusing on just the them as an athletic specimen, if you like. John, was there a, a person or a moment or an event that was the genesis of this this thinking or this thought or approach that you have? I don't think so. Have I always felt that way? I would say yes. Have I always acted upon it as well as I could have done or should have done? Uh, probably not. But with age and experience, I've got better at it every year of practice. So I'm probably best 
better than I've ever been at thinking that way and acting that way now. But I expect in a year's time that I'll, I'll be better again. It's an ever-evolving skill set in, in remembering that and trying to engage with a person or a team of people in that way. Because I, I, I do believe that you're going to get more out of a person as an athlete if you're treating them holistically well and respectfully and with consideration of all of the other aspects of their life that are, in my case, away from the swimming pool. Um, because if we have an athlete in the water two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon and then an hour in the gym, that's five hours. But there's another 19 hours of their day. that Unless we're working with them about how they work in and control and self-regulate those 19 hours, then we're missing a huge trick. Um, now, this doesn't mean that we start to encroach on their personal lives and, and start to become something that they don't want us to be. But we have to, we have to take into account that for most performance athletes, they've got family, they've got maybe got a partner, um, they have maybe an, a life in education, they have sponsors, uh, maybe they have an agent. There's so many factors to the, the jigsaw that makes up that person that if we don't try and help them assemble all of the pieces into position, then we're, we're less likely to get the outcome that we're looking for as, as the coach. John, the Tokyo Olympics was Ireland's most successful in the last 25 years. What were some of the first things you did when you got there in 2017 that helped drive that result? I assembled great people around me. There's no doubt that that's the number one factor was, um, you know, the, the performance director can't be all things to all, all men and women in that regard. So it was, it was crucial. Um, the very best people that I could attract into roles either from within Ireland or from, from outside, um, were brought in in those, in those specialist areas that were going to help the program um, grow into something that was more organically robust for the athletes that were looking to us to do the best for them and by them. So that was number one. And it's my, my heaviest investment from the performance budget is in, is in people. Um, the second thing was to create fit-for-purpose daily environments for athletes onshore. We had a number of athletes were were leaving Ireland for their university years and beyond. Um, although I wanted to maintain their right to make that choice, I didn't want them making that choice because we weren't offering them something that was of equal status and ability and, and class as that that they could receive outside of Ireland. So we, we set about making the National Centre in Dublin and the National Centre in Limerick um, as robust and as bulletproof and uh, high-performing as we possibly could with great people and great resource. And then most recently, we've done exactly the same again in Northern Ireland with a third centre in Bangor. So great people, great environments in which, in which to work, um, strong support services and, and working with key partners. So working with the Sport Ireland Institute and the Sport Northern Ireland Sport Institute to provide services to athletes that were outside of those which my employed team could provide. So it was, it was key partnerships in those areas. And then it was making a, a stronger connection between what was happening in all four provinces because all, pro, all four provinces were doing good things but they weren't necessarily doing them all at the same time for the same reason 
and even using the same language in what they called them. Uh, and I wanted I wanted it so that we had alignment across Ireland, so that if you were born in Galway and you were a swimmer, but your father got work and moved you to Belfast, swimming was still something that you understood immediately as you walked through the door. And you, don't, you didn't have to relearn terminology or the way that the domestic competition calendar worked. And, and that the, comp, the domestic competition calendar was very much about it was a means and an end in its own right, but it was a means to an end to get to national level. And that was a means to an end to get to international level. For those athletes that competed at particular levels, but couldn't, couldn't for whatever reason compete at the level above, it was important to them. But for those that, that would, could compete at a high level, it was also um, a stepping stone through to those levels as well. And that was something that uh, took a little bit of time to get right and we're still polishing it and nudging it but it's certainly in a satisfactory position now. You often liken coaching to a jigsaw where the pieces are present, but they're not in the right order. I was wondering if you could tell us about a time where you have put those pieces in the right order and what happened to performance as a result. Now, I know which road you're leading me down here, um, or I suspect I do. I think there's a, there's a few times where pieces have been put in place in the right order, at the right time, in the right way. One instance that resulted in an Olympic gold medal from a 15-year-old girl, which was, we talk about roller coasters, there was a roller coaster for a few years. Um, what's interesting about that analogy is the athlete has to choose to allow all pieces of the jigsaw to be put on the table before you can actually start helping them put them together in the right order. And the vast majority of athletes leave one or two pieces missing. So you can never put the full picture together because there are parts of their life that they're not willing to change or manoeuvre to be the full package. The 24-7, 365-day-a-year performance athlete with a performance lifestyle and mindset that, that is 100%. And so quite often, quite often you, you don't find until you're a long way into putting those jigsaw pieces together that there's one or two bits that haven't been lost, but you've just not been afforded to click into position. And then you know that you're only going to find 97% or 94% or whatever it is of that athlete's true capabilities and potential. But that's their choice. That's their choice. Because the the biggest challenge for for performance athletes is that holistic buy-in, is that 100% energy and commitment to, to what's necessary. Because the sacrifice there that's necessary. There's difficult decisions to be made. And you have to be a really, really special individual to be able to do all of that. So in the case of Ruta Melutita, the, the Lithuanian Olympic gold champion in, in 2012, she was absolutely the very first person I believe I met that was willing to give all pieces of that jigsaw onto the table and then would work in harmony to put them together, which is incredible for a 15-year-old. You know, that was extreme maturity. And there's, there's, we could digress all day as to why she was that way. She was a special person, but part of her upbringing and part of where she'd come from and what she saw were the benefits, not, not just to her, but to her family in doing this in a particular way were beyond her years. A very similar character that I coached before I moved to Ireland in Ben Proud was the same in that he was just so focused and so committed, but he was a little bit older. And he also, because he was a bit older, he also um, had an interdependence 
with me as his coach. Whereas Ruta, I think, at the beginning had more of a dependence, and that was because of her age. Now, interdependence, spoken about this quite a lot, is where you actually want to get to with an athlete, where you're a team. There's consultation and liaison and discussion. And you honestly give the athlete the table at times to give opinion and allow them to provide you with information that, that can help them. They've got, kind of got to earn that through experience and years and trust and, and integrity. And so I would say they, they absolutely are two examples of where that all of those pieces clicked. With Ruta, he made her Olympic champion. With Ben, he was fourth at the Olympic Games and, and, and just missed a medal by Nats Whisker when it comes to time. I honestly believe that there are athletes I coached in that 30-year period that were either as talented as those two or arguably more talented, but because they held some pieces of the jigsaw back, we didn't see how truly great they were. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I want to ask you about your apprenticeship, but I'd like to follow up a little bit because swimming, swimmers start so young. And the time involvement, you just talked about five hours earlier, but they start early in the morning and they do extra in the afternoon. It's such a huge time sacrifice. How do you help them find joy in this grind and balance so that they have the energy to continue? That's a really interesting question. And I've always worked on the basis that the journey is more honourable than the outcome of the journey. The journey itself of commitment, um, seeing or attempting to see what is the best version of yourself in something that you have a skill at um, is the most honourable thing that an individual can do. And therefore, by implication, the coach helping that person to kick open the doors and push open the windows and let the light in and see who they are and what they can achieve is one of the most honourable vocations that you can have. You know, what's more honourable than helping somebody try and be the best version of themselves? Yeah, I would say that that's, that's the key to enjoyment. You know, there's, there's, there's times when it's tough. There's nothing particularly glamorous about burying your face in chlorinated water for 20 hours a week. That notion of deferred gratification what you give up now in other aspects of your life, not give up, but change or uh, make small sacrifices so that the, ex- the life experience that you can have because of what it is that you're doing is so more rounded and whole 
and special than that which a regular person might achieve who doesn't commit to something in this particular way. That for me is the drive and the intrinsic motivation for them to do what it is that they do. And ultimately what they're seeking is the knowledge of how good they are so that when it's the day to hang up their swimsuit and say, that's it, I'm done, they can honestly look in the mirror and say, I know how good I was and not have any element of frustration of not knowing because there's no time machine to go back and put it right. You talk uh, this theme of deferred gratification, it comes through... It comes through a lot in the articles I've read about you. In fact, it sort of is about this long-term thinking, this decision-making with the future in mind. I've, I've got a quote, I think, which summarises your belief in this area a little bit. Now, you say, the coach with integrity knows that they have a duty to protect and honour an athlete's future in the sport. This is not necessarily normal, common. The performance today, tomorrow, the next event tends to be the the main focus. How did you come to shape this belief around the future being a incentive or a motivating factor for an athlete? Because we're a sport that that requires early specialization, whether we like it or not, it does. It requires a high level of commitment quite early in a person's life. It does require um, them to commit a large part of their childhood and their adolescent to, to seeing how good they can be. But it's not in those years that they're going to get to see what the end game is. For a 15-year-old girl to win an Olympic gold medal is unusual. It's happened before, it'll happen again, but it's unusual. It's even more unusual, if not unheard of, in males. So we have to work on the basis that the vast majority of people who are potentially going to achieve their greatest achievement in the sport, whatever that might be, it's going to happen just before or close to a point of retirement. That they're in the if they're not in the eleventh hour of their career when they do it, they're in the ninth or tenth hour. It's it's not in the first five minutes of starting. So and I think this is this is the, the case with the vast majority of sports is that it's time sensitive. The window of opportunity is relatively small. Doing the right things at the right time um, allow that full fruition at a point of seniority to come at a time when the athlete is most likely to be able to say, that is potentially my greatest achievement and I don't know if I'll ever beat that. That's a real shame if that that happens at 12 or 13 years of age because what's happened is, well, well, something isn't right. The athlete's decided that this isn't something they want to do anymore or you have an unscrupulous coach that does too much, too early in the wrong way with a young person um, to get results that don't really mean anything in the grand scheme of things, but they, they might seem to mean something at that moment in time. And so the plates that you've got to keep spinning, not just with the athlete, but with parents, because we know that parents can be extremely hungry for success. You know, there's nothing better that Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Jones like than sitting down with the neighbours and saying how great little Susan or little Jimmy is at 13 years of age because they get bragging rights and whatever else. But you have to keep this plate spinning, which is for now, to keep them interested and engaged and wanting to come back tomorrow. But at the same time, you've got this plate spinning over here, which is tomorrow and next year and the next five or six years, where what you're doing here is keeping them engaged, but it's not hurting this side of things 
either. So it's enough for success to be felt and for uh, motivation to maintain, to come back the next season and come back the season after. But there's there's nothing that's done that potentially hurts where they can be when it's 11th hour, when it's right. This is the year or these are the months in which I have to get this right because there's a point in time in any athlete's career where the line of progress just starts to tip the wrong way, having flattened out a little bit before it. It's inevitable because the vast majority of sports have an age-determining factor to them, certainly physical sports. Um, The coach is ethically sound and morally sound with the right scruples, will do all that they can to allow the athlete to achieve success in the moment and everything that they can to ensure that whatever it is that they're prescribing or delivering content-wise in terms of the coaching program is not going to be a hazard or an impediment to allowing them to see how good they can be in their senior years. John, can you tell me about your snowflake theory? I probably need to change its name now because the connotation of snowflake has taken um, has taken a whole new meaning in recent years. So when people now say snowflake theory, um, we're not talking about Generation Z here. The, my snowflake theory, that goes back a good 20 years before anything of that nature was considered. And it, it effectively says that every single person that walks through your door, whether you're a coach, whether you're a school teacher, Whatever it is you may do in terms of working with young people, they're a unique specimen that you've never seen before. And that's even the case with identical twins. They might look the same and they might be the same height and the same weight and whatever else, but they're they're not the same people. And so every person that you work with is a coaching experience and a learning experience for the coach to prepare for the next person that they get to work with who they've never worked with before and will never get to work with again because they're unique. And my snowflake theory was was very much around. There was a trend in the 80s, late 80s and the 90s for writing development plans for the masses, which put hundreds, if not thousands of kids into pigeonholes of what they were and what they, and what they needed. And, Again, this was something that I, I I didn't like and I rebelled a bit against, which was that's not coaching the individual that's, or, or learning who the individual is. And again, what their individual idiosyncrasies are that make them that unique person. Um, that's just coaching robots. That's just grey mulch in the middle. And that we've we've got to find a way of of reaching individuals within groups of athletes that we coach because there'll be something physical or psychological or emotional um, that, that is, that is them. We won't have seen before and we won't see again. And every time we coach that person, it's a preparation for coaching the next person who will not be the same as them. So we're, we're always evolving as coaches or teachers working with young people in that sense, because there isn't a point where you, where you can say, I now get it. I now know how to coach anybody and everybody that walks through the door because they'll always be the person that breaks that rule. And so that's where my snowflake theory came from, was that because every snowflake is unique, 
when you put them under the microscope and no two are ever the same, that's exactly the same with human beings in both physical, mental and emotional characteristics. You're, uh, you're not that old, John. <laughs> You've had a long apprenticeship as a coach, a long path from that boy in 1989 all the way through to coaching on the world stage today. What has this taught you about patience and perseverance? Well, I feel pretty old. Even thank you for saying that I'm not. Um, <laughs> patience is absolutely everything. There's a term that I sometimes use which is a dichotomy, which is patient urgency. So the way I think of that is you have to be able to wait for the time to be right to to add or to cajole or to nudge or to push. But at the same time, we know that with every day that passes, it's a day that we don't get back. So you're again, you're you're in this situation where you know that it's maybe next week or next month or next year that you'll really start to see some outcomes. But you also know that if it isn't, that those days are gone or those hours are gone. So the p- patience is, is absolutely key. But at the same time, you leave no stone unturned within your patience. So whilst you're being patient, you're kicking open doors and pulling books off shelves and scouring the net and calling people and whatever it is that you need to do to try and find an answer that you may be looking for um, that enables you to make the progress that you would like to make within that particular period of time. And so Rome wasn't built in a day and neither is a great athlete. Now, some uh, are built much more quickly and that might come down to their natural abilities and a, pr- a genetic predisposition to, to something that you're trying to achieve with them with a, with a particular stroke in the pool or with a particular event. And then there are others where what experience has told me is you maybe, even if you don't openly um, think that they're, they're not going to achieve the greatest things and you might subliminally kind of go, well, I'm just going, I'm just going to do the best I can by this guy because I don't necessarily see them swimming at a particular level. They, they're the ones that come and get you. They're the ones that come and bite you on the ass and prove you wrong later. And I've been caught, I've been caught out a few times like that before. So I've, I've learned never really to write anybody off and to think they're not the real deal because there are those that come to the table real late with their abilities and, and kind of prove you wrong. And then there are others where you see them early and you think, wow, we've got a, we're an absolute world beater here. And then they just don't have some of the minerals that's necessary for them to, to necessarily bring that to fruition. So human beings are the most incredible species, um, the most surprising of species in what they're either capable of doing when you don't think they can do it or incapable of doing when you believe that they can. So patience is, is a massive element of that. And I suppose perseverance and patience go hand in glove. Um, perseverance to me, sometimes I'm a little bit concerned with as a term because it suggests carrying on doing the same thing, but hoping for a different outcome. Whereas perseverance for me is persevering with the individual, but looking for different means and methods that allows the individual to make sufficient progress. Because we all know if we just carry on doing the same thing, we just get the same. So there's, there's perseverance to the person, maybe not perseverance to the task. If you're locked into perseverance to the task, then maybe you're limiting the individual through not being expansive and open enough to trying something new that allows them to to reach that full potential they may have. With these learnings of perseverance and 
and patience and being nudged. You talked in there about Rome not being built in a day. You talked about no stone being unturned. You've got four children of your own and I believe three of them have followed you into swimming. So you've clearly not scared them off. (laughs) But if I could ask you to go back, if we had a time machine, and I I know we don't, but if I could take you back and introduce you to that 19-year-old that was the head coach at Plymouth all the way back then, knowing what you know now and the experiences you've had, what would you say to that person? I'll tell you what, that 19-year-old guy wouldn't have listened to me because he was too hard-headed. He would have just believed he was doing it the right way and would have would probably have nodded and said, yeah, thanks very much, and then said, who's that old guy that's trying to tell me how to do things? So <laughs> that would be my worry about going back in time and trying to advise myself is whether I'd actually listen. It took me a little bit of time to recognise that there were some people that I needed to listen to. There isn't an awful lot I would change. You know, there's some, there's some really weird stuff that happened to me that at the time was, was, was pretty horrible. But if it hadn't happened, then I wouldn't be in the position I'm in now. So I give an example. Um, we were taught the wrong syllabus for A-level English. And so when we sat in the exams, we were all, there was a lot of books that we were asked questions on that we hadn't read. If we'd have had the syllabus taught to us correctly, my A-level English would have been a better result and I would have gone to a different university and I wouldn't have ended up coaching because I had a different route in my life. I ended up at the university that was bottom of the list because I ended up with A-level results where that's the only place I could go. So I ended up in Plymouth, which was not my first intent. And then I ended up coaching, which wasn't an intent. And then I ended up coaching and school teaching, which again really wasn't an intent. And then I came out of school teaching to become a coach. And so so when I look back, it was pretty painful when I got that A-level result. It was pretty painful when I sat in the exam trying to answer questions on books that I hadn't read for two years. Um, but if that hadn't happened, then... I wouldn't be where I am now. I'd have a completely different, completely different journey in life. And it might have been a journey in something that I, I couldn't or didn't excel in because it probably wouldn't have been swimming coaching. So there isn't an awful lot that I'd go, I'd go back and change because the mistakes you make, unless they're cataclysmic ones, the mistakes you make formulate who you are much more than the successes do. I think you're, you become a stronger, more resilient person with the ability to display hardiness and empathy. Those things are all developed through making mistakes rather than just being good at stuff all the time. And so if you were to go back in time, your default would be to try and tell yourself where not to make those mistakes, but then you wouldn't be the person who you are 30 years later. So yeah, it's not an awful lot I'd change. I'm very, very satisfied with my life path. John, you've been very generous with your time today and I know it's, uh, it's getting towards evening and you've probably been up since like 3am teaching swimmers. So maybe just one, one uh, last question if I could. And I'd like to ask you, in the distant future, when you do uh, hang up the whistle, when you stop coaching, what's the legacy you hope you've left behind? I moved to Ireland to try and help people experience what it is that I'd experienced. There, there's an exceptional glow and warmth to helping a young person achieve the pinnacle of your sport. And it was evident that in order to be able to do that, it has to be, it has to be systematically strong 
within the nation or the region or the area in which you work for that to become more likely. Because no matter what you do, unless you have a really huge population of athletes come through the door, it remains unlikely. So your job is to erode away the unlikeliness and creep it towards more likely. Most, most coaches in the world, 99.9% of coaches in the world, won't coach an Olympian, never mind coach an Olympic medalist. So the, the more I can do, wherever it is I'm working, the more I can do to help and enable others to feel that tremendous uh, sense of, of, of satisfaction. And I can only describe it as a, as a, as a warm glow that, that you get when you help someone to achieve their ultimate ambitions. If I, if I can find ways, um, knocking over pediments and removing barriers to allow people to achieve something that's even close to that, if not that, then that's the kind of legacy I want to leave behind wherever I work. And we go back to the honour of the journey. And that, for me, is an honourable journey and one that I'll continue to work on. I think the honour of the journey is a great place for us to leave it. John, thank you so much for your time this evening great chatting with you so many golden nuggets and insights in there and i wish you all the best uh, for the road towards paris thank you it's been uh, it's been a great hour i've really enjoyed that thank you paul hi everyone it's mike here and you've been listening to the great coach john rudd some of the other key points that resonated with me were his views on how you'll get more out of an athlete if you're treating them holistically and respectfully how has leadership style changed to be more affiliative which he believes is essential to arrive at the most fully rounded decision possible. The great coaches have a natural warmth and engagement with the human race, and wanting to leave a legacy of helping and enabling others to feel a tremendous sense of satisfaction. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Loza who said, I coach under 12 basketball. I believe in a fun, safe environment with respect and accountability, giving kids life skills. The podcast gives me lots of great ideas to help with talking to kids. Thank you. Thank you, Loza. The interaction with people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And all the details of how to connect with us and the other people who are interested in the leadership insights from great sports coaches are in the show notes. 